Yeah, the modernization, the, the word, it sounds like a very Washington word. But really, modernization is, is a tool to become more ready and more lethal. Today, it takes anywhere from five to seven years to formalize a requirement. What is that key performance parameter I need on the weapon system? And then experiment and prototype. That's why it's taking 20 years to put a weapon system in place. So if you were a major league ball player and you throw a 100-mile-an-hour fastball, it's like me telling you I'm going to keep you in the minors for 20 years until I bring you to the majors when you're a 40-year-old man. We're trying to speed up the process to get it in play faster. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and my guest on this episode is Undersecretary of the Army, Ryan McCarthy. Our conversation covers everything from modernization and what that means for soldiers in the Operational Army to the recently announced Army Futures Command and what role it will have in preparing the Army for a changing operational environment characterized by a diverse set of threats. Really quickly, before we get to the conversation, a couple quick notes. First, in addition to the MWI podcast, we also produce a second podcast series called The Spear. Each episode features first-hand accounts of combat, and it's our platform to explore what combat, leadership, and decision-making under intensely difficult circumstances is really like. If you haven't heard it yet, you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Undersecretary of the Army, Ryan McCarthy. Sir, thanks very much for joining me for this episode of the MWI podcast. Um, Before we get into the conversation, we're recording uh, in your office here in the Pentagon And I wonder if I can ask you about a piece of artwork on the wall uh, right here next to us. It's a Civil War print. Uh, I was actually tipped off by one of your staff members that you chose it for a particular reason. And I wonder if you'd be willing to share that. Uh, Yeah, it's a a print of Brigadier General John Buford at Gettysburg. And it's in the midst of the, the essentially the, uh, the transition when he brought, he was funneling in the the first Corps, General John Reynolds. And uh, what I, I'm a student of history. And what I find particularly uh, interesting and fascinating is just General Buford's performance at Gettysburg. He had a very uh, finite window to, or to read the battlefield and recognize that if he laid in a skirmish line to buy time for follow-on forces, that he could maintain the, the high ground terrain in the battle and, uh, and put the Union in a position to win. And uh, an unsung hero of that battle, but what, it, what you realize is that you have brief moments in your tenure where you can take the opportunity, seize the opportunity, and build momentum uh, for the organization. So I, I look at that print among a couple others here in my office, along with General Washington at Valley Forge, uh, is opportunity. You know, it, it's, uh, you, you see these, these men, and they had these extraordinary moments in history. They, they saw very quickly, they saw opportunity, and they took it. Speaking of opportunities, I think that's a great segue to um, my first question. If we kind of scan the horizon looking out into the future, uh, where 
are the opportunities for strategic victories and 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 what does the i guess what does the threat landscape look like the last 17 years the US army has been engaging counterinsurgency counterterrorism operations in the middle east and it, what it's done is you have a generation of officers that are very focused very seasoned in this type of uh, op- combat operations. Along the while here, four nations in particular have been recognizing our, our national defense strategy that have made uh, significant investments in their modernizing their military, uh, made great gains in, in their uh, their economic performance, gro- their gross domestic product, and that's China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. In order for the United States to maintain this position as uh, as the premier military entity in the world, we have to make adjustments in the way that we invest and the way that we train. And uh, this national defense strategy, uh, major planks in it are nuclear, uh, our nuclear posture, uh, the, our investments to fight near-peer competitors, irregular warfare, and partnership capacity, the four major planks, if you will. Uh, with respect to near-peer competition, we, there's a recognition that we need to modernize, continue to modernize our force to deal with uh, potential threats in the world and to maintain our position as the best of breed in all uh, domains of combat. So uh, what, you've, what you've seen the Army do over the last you know, really year to uh, 13, 14 months is uh, look at our, our balance sheet, if you will, the, the, the funds that we're provided by the taxpayer and prioritize our investments against six priorities. That's uh, the uh, long-range precision fires, next-generation combat vehicles, future vertical lift, uh, network, integrated air missile defense, and soldier lethality that spans across all fundamentals, shoot, move, communicate, sustain, and protect. So we have these six priorities, but they're really priority capabilities, a a, uh, portfolio of capabilities. If you look back at our big five major weapon systems, it was really the big 64. There were capabilities that were all underneath the Abrams, the Bradley, Apache. But uh, so within these six capabilities, we we try to look at how do you hedge against threats for long-range precision fires, for example, from the tactical, the operational, the strategic. So cannon artillery to more of a strategic core-level type assets to a strategic asset that could be a game changer when fighting against a near-peer threat. So you'll see uh, that the Army has made substantial investments. We've moved billions of dollars in our S&T investments against these uh, six portfolios, which really encompasses about 80% of our S&T investment is against these six capabilities that the Chief outlined last fall. The Army's in the midst of a major restructuring which we have not done in since 44 years since the department put the, put in place TRADOC, AMC, and FORCECOM. And so last fall there was an announcement that was made to put in place a, a task force to look at the way in which we conduct material development design. How do we procure major weapon systems faster, more efficiently? And what the Army has done over time is that the roles and responsibilities are kind of disparately located across the, the department. The entire department of the army so we needed to look at how do you bring all of the roles and responsibilities the manner in which we run this process under one roof 
So what this restructuring is a term you often hear in business is not just breaking apart pieces and slapping together, but looking at the intricacies of the process and where are the pieces like the, the requirements definition, S&T investments, and where they're spread out throughout the process and how do you fuse them closer together to get better collaboration, move information more quickly, but to make more informed decisions faster. So the recently released um, national security strategy and national defense strategy, I think pretty clearly emphasize near peer threats as sort of the centerpiece against which our um, national security and defense planning is aligned. If we look back to the early years of the um, post 9-11 wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was a shift in the other direction towards counterinsurgency, toward stability operations. But that shift happened um, pretty gradually, really, I think, and, and incrementally. It took a while for a new doctrine to be published, for um, the training scenarios at the combat training centers to be adjusted. So is this uh, an effort to kind of reorient reorient our planning emphasis, but do so, I guess, in a much more deliberate way? I wouldn't say shift back. It's just more balance. You know, if, if the, the scenarios at the, the CTCs for units deploying in the Middle East will still reflect the types of operations that they would conduct in the Middle East. But there, if, if you look at the balance of the numbers of, of rotations, there are more near-peer uh, scenarios as directed by the chief. Uh, so you'll, when I mentioned the four or five planks, the four planks before, uh, there is the recognition of regular warfare will be conducted in, in perpetuity at this point. You talked about six priorities, and, and you touched on one of them, uh, in particular modernization. Uh, we're here you know, in the Pentagon, and I think, I think what that means, what modernization means to people in this building is um, maybe pretty intuitive, uh, but the further you get from here, its meaning is maybe um, a little less clear. I, I wonder if you could maybe explain what modernization means to, say, uh, junior officers and how they'll see modernization efforts that are underway now um, manifest over the course of their army careers. Yeah, the modernization, the, the word, it sounds like a very Washington word, but really modernization is is a tool to become more ready and more lethal. We're investing in synthetic training environments so that we can get hundreds of repetitions in, in a couple of hours, much more affordable, much more efficient, so that soldiers can have the opportunity to train on a striker uh, simulator or an, an aviation simulator, or even we have this one-world terrain system where they can practice route reconnaissance, look at objectives. It can even put in effects of what a building would look like if you dropped a JDAM on it and pre-assault fires. So the soldiers can visualize and conduct rehearsals at the leader level and even down the individual soldier level. So that helps us increase readiness because it's the hundreds of repetitions that you need before you ever go wheels up. With respect to lethality, faster, more precise, the investment in the weapon systems, like an increased carbine or a, a, where it can have higher rate of fire, 
shoot farther distances, extended range cannon artillery that'll have their reach greater distances with higher volume. That's to me is what modernization is, why it's so important to me. And which is why I spend hours on this subject every day because it's the one thing that I can do to increase the technical margin for our men and women to win in combat. Can you talk a little bit about the Army Futures Command? Uh, you mentioned restructuring going on in the Army. I think this, uh, if I understand correctly, uh, is a pretty big part of that. The Futures Command was announced, um, I believe, several months ago. And I wonder if you might talk a little bit about what it's going to do, what its purpose, I guess, is, is intended to be. So we're on the verge of making that uh, final decision. But uh, what I'd mentioned earlier is there's a lot of different voices in the Army that work on futures. Part of the challenge is you got to consolidate all of those ideas so you can have rigorous, informed debate, but also focus and with that focus can look at what are the capabilities that we're going to need to maintain our position as number one in the world. So that's, that's where the process really begins. And then what you do is the, the formalizing of requirements. What do these weapon systems need? Then the types of investments you need from S&T to study the concept from both studying the operational concepts to the technical concepts so that you can ensure that this is a weapon system that will serve that will survive as you go through the weapon system development process and yield a better outcome the material development design so everything from the idea to formalizing the idea to studying the idea to putting it into a experimental and prototype phase to then slapping the table on that material design and then start procuring large tranches, what we refer to as low-rate initial production and then a full-rate production. And what, by bringing this capability under one roof, we can speed up the process. Today it takes anywhere from five to seven years to formalize a requirement. What is that key performance parameter I need on the weapon system? And then experiment and prototype that's why it's taking 20 years to put a weapon system in place. So if you were a major league ball player and you throw a 100-mile-an-hour fastball, it's like me telling you I'm going to keep you in the minors for 20 years until I bring you to the majors when you're a 40-year-old man. We're trying to speed up the process to get it in play faster. How much faster? Um, how much faster can we can we really be shooting for just in the the we're in this interim phase where we what i failed to mention earlier these six portfolios we've put in place post-brigade command qualified officers around the one two-star level that are leading these portfolio groups and they're partnered with program executive officers from our acquisition side of the house uh, and they have testing and finance and legal. They have all this support, so they're like little task forces, if you will. And they're reporting directly to me and General McConville, the Vice Chief of Staff of the Army. And while we're in the midst of this studying the restructuring, we have this task force that's studying the restructuring. They're teeing up decisions to the Secretary and the Chief literally next week, and we're going to make this ultimate decision in the month of March. But this interim process will be formalized, so they have this futures command, which is what we're looking at, potentially a three-year, four-star level officer leading this organization, and the cross-functional teams below that, and then ultimately reporting up to the uh, myself and the, the vice chief, General McConville. 
So these cross-functional teams have been reporting in the interim here phase here to General McConville and I. And we are literally making decisions very quickly from both an investment standpoint and requirements. The intent here is to try to reduce the over the dozen layers that you have today to three to getting a decision. So compressing the number of people involved down to three layers, we want to get requirements finalized to around 18 months as opposed to the way it's been for five to seven years. How do you balance speeding it up with making sure we're getting the best equipment as well? Well, there's it's always the challenge. You know, if you when you look at getting trade-offs worked out very quickly, the value in it is that you don't make bad bets and chase the technology and put yourself on a treadmill. You, you, you can end up making a choice based off of what is the requirement that you need today. If you look out in the, in the private sector, why companies, many companies are so successful, like Apple or Samsung and these others, if the technology is ready today, they put it in play very quickly, and they upgrade it constantly. But what they've gotten right is the systems engineering aspect, the systems engineering approach. The operational concept and the technical concept, the open systems architecture are sound. And you can plug and play applications based off of the maturity of the technology. When you make bad bets and you're under pressure with budgets and staying in sync with the congressional process, we end up making bad choices. And that's what we want to stop doing because we're not getting the yield of taxpayer dollars in our investments. So it's putting a lot of discipline and focus in the process and compressing the number of people involved. Because if you have a lot of layers and you have a lot of people involved, you don't have accountability. So in addition to uh, the Futures Command, what other sorts of changes is, is the Army likely to undergo with this restructuring that you've talked about? Well, it, you know, it, it will change some of the fundamentals of of AMC, of Forcecom, of Tradoc. So we we're, we're obviously want to look very quickly, uh, very quickly, very concisely to, to make sure we don't, don't disrupt or dismantle through organizations that do that have been run very well. Tradoc is, was, you know, very extremely well designed. You know, the one thing that the Army can always take tremendous pride on is our ability to train our men and women and prepare them for combat operations. We are absolutely the best in the world at what we do, and that organization is its amazing what it does, the whole .mil PF. So looking at that very closely because you don't want to disrupt that, especially after 17 years of conflict. What's amazing is how safety incidents have actually gone down in the height of all this operational tempo with Thousands of men and women continue to deploying year after year, and that's because of how well we train our people and the investments that are made. And that's why readiness will always be our number one priority, and we won't even shift our weight in the other direction. Uh, but so you don't want to disrupt the work that Tradoc does, the whole dot mil PF. But it's important that the link of concepts, operational concepts, are tied very closely to the weapon system. Because if it's not, if the op- operational concept isn't tight, it doesn't matter how good the technology is because our folks will not be comfortable in the way they utilize those weapon systems in combat. And that confidence in the weapon system is incredibly important. When we're thinking about the future, 
what's the best way to conceptualize that? Do we need to kind of break it down between sort of, you know, maybe the near term, say three to five years, all the way out to the long term, 20 years, 30 years or more into the future? That that longer time range uh, might be multiple generations of equipment and weapon systems into the future. Is Is the Army Futures Command going to be tackling this sort of, I guess, deep future problem set? So that's a that's a great question. It, what we're and, the, and it's really uh, the points we were making about Tradoc before, how Tradoc works with the Futures Command and the, uh, the the timing related to how they're tied together, if you will. Who's looking at what? You know, because technically the future is you know an hour from now. So tomorrow, we're breaking that down, and that's all part of this discussion discussion that we're having uh, at the senior level right now. So you served in 2001 in Afghanistan. You were, I think, a captain. Um, if, we, if we look backward uh, at the now, I guess, nearly 17 years that have passed since then, and then maybe project forward another 17 years, I wonder if you could kind of discuss how you see uh, the, the war fighting experience of a junior officer at that level, a lieutenant or a captain, um, how you see that changing, how that's going to differ from... Um, today or, or I guess from yours in, in 2001? They'll probably be a lot better than I was, uh, but uh, they'll be better equipped. They'll be better trained. Uh, you know, the amazing thing that I get every day is I'm around the most seasoned combat leaders in the history of the Republic. And it's really, uh, it shows how much better we are than when I was a captain. Uh, and that's a lot of hard work, a lot of sacrifice, but uh, I think that we're, we're trying to do everything we can to protect that continuity and ingrain that in our DNA, and I, and I think we have. So then I want to ask a question about uh, balance, kind of going back to our discussion earlier about preparing for near-peer threats. Uh, there's certainly, I think, a mentality out there uh, that if you can do the big stuff against those big threats, you can do the small stuff, you know, stability operations, things like that. But as we saw over a number of years in Iraq and Afghanistan, that small stuff can be really, really hard. Um, how do we build a force that has that balance? Is there a way to, I guess, practically speaking, uh, is there a way to train, man, and equip a single force that can do kind of the full spectrum at a level of effectiveness that our our national security interests will require? I think we, I think we I think we are doing that, and that we will only refine it and get better. That a lot of the skills that that soldiers are trained, that they they're trained on at the national training center, they're they're applicable in both types of combat operations. In a lot of ways, it's just from from the small unit tactics versus brigade and above. A lot of the fighting that we've done at the street level in, in Afghanistan or Iraq was company and below. And the CTCs is really a battalion, brigade, and a higher. So, uh, you know, I think that it's the repetitions that you get, the cycles that we're on, uh, but a lot of that's supply and demand. You know, it's a very dangerous and complex world that we live in. We're growing the force. Uh, you know, uh, we, I think we're going to get up to about 487,000 by the end of this fit-up, um, that we all believe that the force continue, needs to continue to grow so that uh, we can meet these demands. We're making the right investments on, uh, on these weapon systems so that we can maintain our competitive advantage. 
So I, I think we have very good balance today, but it is extremely difficult. So we have a listener base that's pretty diverse, um, but of course we have a large number of listeners who wear the U.S. Army uniform. I wonder if there's anything else, um, you know, for the for the thousands of them that are going to hear this. If there's a message you think is is really important to get out to them that that, that reaches them. The Army is in the midst of a major transition. It's important for all of those men and women in particular, or if they have family members, to pay attention, to be part of the conversation, uh, to give us, you know, to really give us their thoughts. I mean, I, I invest a great deal of my time trying to communicate into the Army. I do a lot out with the media here in Washington and throughout the country, but I'm trying to communicate to the Army as well, that we're trying to make the right investments that have the appropriate balance to deal with the variety of threats that I mentioned before. This is very difficult, and it's something we have to do together. So the more candid that people are when I'm out uh, meeting with, with Army, uh, Army units and their families, uh, the better. And uh, I, just, I, I think that you have a tremendous leadership team as Secretary Esper, General Milley, General McConville, our Major Daly, our Major Command Commanders, uh, this, like I mentioned before, the extraordinary amount of combat experience that they had. They all served together. It's a tremendous bond. I mean, this uniform team's outstanding. Uh, Secretary Esper has uh, put a lot of energy into the team with our communication with both the Congress and the industry. His his wife is a Dodia school teacher, so this is a guy who's all in. And uh, so it's it's really exciting to be part of this team. But we ask everybody to be to be a part of the conversation. Well, sir, uh, thank you very much for taking some time for the Modern War Institute. Uh, it's been a pleasure to be able to talk to you about what I think are really some um, well, really important topics. So thanks very much. Thank you. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, if you're not already following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. We want to connect with other people with an interest in the topics we cover, and it's a great way to stay up to date on the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. All right, thanks again.